0: of The After Hours here with are and Tea. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about Donnie Darko from 2001, a very unique film to say the least, and not only a film which marked the debut of Richie Kelly, but also a film which has now become something... So ingrained into pop culture that it's hard to imagine cinema landscape without it, especially as so many sort of screenshots and characters that have been taken from it and just uh, taken on a life of their own. Um, it's hard to really imagine the fact that the film came out, didn't do overly well in the States, came over to the UK, and much like Reservoir Dogs, just blew up into this whole cultural thing and went back to the States. and just really sort of got a second life Um, so much so that the studio released it with a Director's Cup which added on about another 20 minutes and was uh, released to something of mixed reviews as many people felt that it took away the mystique of the film as it overly explained a lot of the mysteries which had made Donnie Darko have such cool appeal. The film itself, it follows a young man called Donny Darko and in the year 1988 he goes slip walking one night and encounters a mysterious demonic bunny rabbit called Frank who tells him that the world is going to end in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes and 12 seconds. Waking up the next morning on the local golf course, he returns home to find that a jet engine has crashed into his bedroom and would seemingly have killed him if it had not been for his sleepwalking antics. At the same time, the jet engine, the FAA, do not have any idea where it's come from, and so sparks a series of events that will take Donnie through on a rather unique course as he becomes perhaps an agent for chaos, or is he an agent of change? It's something that we'll be finding out tonight as we look at a very interesting 30 days that will lead up to the what Frank has foretold as being the end of the world. Now, obviously, given this is a film which I'm a huge fan of, I'm a huge fan of uh, Richard Kelly, and he's one of those directors that... I just love his whole filmography, and I wish that he could finally get out of movie maker jail and get another project, especially when we look at the likes of lesser directors like M. Night Shanahan, Eli Roth, who are both out there producing absolute dreck and seemingly having no problems getting their own projects off the ground, and yet uh, Richard Kelly seems a little stranded of only having the two original projects, a remake of uh, the Twilight episode, Twilight Zone episode, The Box, um, as well as providing the script for Tony Scott's Domino. So, Kim, I mean, this is the first time Watch for yourself. What did you make of Don Darko?
1: It was intriguing, I think is the word. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, it, it's very similar to a lot of very artsy movies that you see. Um, yeah. Probably like, uh, I would say, early day Christopher Nolan stuff, that sort of style. It's, it's, it's interesting, especially because, you know, a lot of it in 2001, it's, it's pretty much the start of, say, uh, a lot of the familiar faces in the movie. It was, like, a lot of question marks, right? It was really weird, and then it was just a lot of weirdness that went on, and then it was just like, what? <laughs> and then after that, you were just like, oh, all these things hopefully will piece together, and they do. So yeah, I think I think it's really good because it. I always think that a director who also takes on the role of a writer of a script is always, they always have a, it, it shows a lot of, you know, everything that they want is in the film. At the same time, like, I can't imagine how complex that storyboard was when they were putting it together and when you can execute that sort of storyline that kind of like has that... I guess loop kind of style. It works really well because you can you're able to put all these pieces together and then and then kind of like break it apart. And then at the end, pull it all back together, kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I knew when I gave gave, gave this film to you, I and mean, it's it was this air of hour of like, oh my god, what happens if Kim doesn't like this movie? Because I've hoped. I hold it in like such high regard for myself, and I still remember like got the original t- first time I saw this film, and it was really the sort of start of a brief period I spent with like the restore arts doing programming for there at my local uh, cinema basically using it as an excuse to bring across films like *Bolton for Columbine and Rabbit Proof Fence and City of God and just films mm-hmm. I generally wanted to see and do these one night screens and Donnie Darko was like the first of those screens and I still remember like seeing coming away from the theatre and just knowing I'd seen something really quite quite special but at the same time not really having a clue what I'd just watched so if any, if you if you're anyone who watches this for like the first time and doesn't have really any sort of idea of what they saw. That's a pretty normal normal reaction to obviously watching this film is it throws a lot of ideas out there and I think that's one of the the great things about this film is the fact that it much like a David Lynch movie, it throws these ideas out there and leaves it to the viewer to sort of piece it together and I think much like uh all the there's a article that was like put out years and years ago and it was like, you know you're a Donnie Darko fan and like if you if you like pause the uh <laughs> pause the tape to read the um the, the brief history of time travel that Robert uh, roberta sparrows uh writes in that you see pages of in in the film and if you get a special edition you get like a little copy of the book that you can flick through and it gives you all these different theories about time travel and stuff and it you can piece together all what it all basically means about which reality we're in and um what the different sort of characters represent, which is just... It's something I really love about this film, and much like Kelly's uh, sort of follow-up, Southland Tales, which, again, was enough of these films, where you sort of, like, had this great joy of just diving into this world and piecing it together, and, it, and this is a film that just rewards so much, like, the more you rewatch it. Because every time you watch it, you notice new sort of details about it, so... I'm, uh... I'm kind of glad that, the fact that you just didn't think, oh, that was just complete garbage, but you just got something from it.
1: Well, no, I don't I don't even think, like, you know, it's one of those movies I probably wouldn't go back and watch a second time, because I feel like I got what I needed in the first time. Yeah. So I'm feeling kind of smart after you said that. Oh, oh that's good though.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, but I'm sure, like, there's many things that, you know, you probably can catch little details and stuff like that if, you know, I went back to watch it a second time. But, I mean, the ideas of the movie are all there. And I think it, it, it's all like... Um, it's really like the first part is you wonder if he's really just hallucinating all this stuff. Because some of this stuff is really trippy. <laughs> but then, you know, as the movie goes along, um, it's structured in a way where it's still trippy. But then you start wondering if it really is time travel and and there's like this whole question mark on how that is because you know the roberta R- roberta sparrow isn't exactly like a it's also kind of a trippy character yes so, cuz <laughs> okay. I mean
0: she's like she, At this point when we were introduced to her film She's like a hundred years old And she's basically lost her marbles So she spends her days walking back and forth To the mailbox And to the point where the locals have named her Grandma Deaf And have no idea that she's like responsible for this Like key piece Of uh, of scientific Writing It's kind of like up there with Stephen Hawking's uh, Brief history of the Of the universe She's written this book that nobody really knows knows about, and very few people are actually able to understand it. But yet, it plays this key part in a uh, key part in in the story that's unfolding. And but for most people, she's just this crazy woman who goes constantly back and forth to the mailbox. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just I think it's. Um, I mean, talking about characters, I think that you know the fact that there are, like I was saying, like, there's all these familiar faces, you know, um, uh, Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal does, you know, the, the main guy, and then you see, uh, you know, uh, Jenna Malone, and you have, obviously, um, Maggie Guyenhall and all that stuff, all those people, and obviously there's much more, you know, you even have Patrick Swayze in this ridiculous role, <laughs> um, I love Patrick Swayze but that was a ridiculous role that kind of just made you laugh and then you know you see familiar faces like uh, uh, a young you know uh, Jolene Purdy who you know now has gone on to do Orange is the New Black so you know there's a lot of familiar faces here and there's a lot of things that are going on here with all these characters um some of them obviously they're they're not as I guess they're not as deep as others but at the same time it's it's I really feel you know especially in the in terms of you know constructing this whole Donnie Darko character like it's just you know you get to see uh, understand a lot of him not through maybe not through his his interactions with Frank but rather um through all those like different um psychiatrist visits that he has And all these weird things that happen when he's in those visits. Um, It's just, you know, (laughs) I, I don't know how to, you know, this movie is really hard to talk about, I find. Like, it's really hard to talk about, and there's so much here, and there's so much that's going on, and yet there's so much that you're like, well, how did he get to be able to do all this when he's sleepwalking? Yeah. Or, you know, as he slowly, the movie goes along, he's doing these things consciously. But how is he able to get away with those things, you know? Obviously, there's some issues of security going on here.
0: <laughs> I think the fact is 1988 and we're not in yeah. a complete Big Brother state. Uh, That's true. That's especially, true. like, here in the UK. Here in the UK, you would have, like, 400 CCTV cameras, like, following his every move. And it would just never happen. But 1988, you get a little bit of leeway there. Yeah. And... Even though it's obviously set in the 80s, the, the film, frankly, doesn't, like, do that cliche thing of just, like, constantly, like, Oh, remember this 80s thing? Or remember this 80s thing? It's a very subtle sort of uh, time period that it's it set in, and it just plays more into just the soundtrack, the and, actual and, 80s part, some.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, talking about that, that's a really good thing, because that gives, you know, Donnie Darko a longevity to the movie. Like... You can watch this today and not feel like you're in the 80s so much. Um, and I think that that's a really good thing. Um, like, you know, you, it, it's nice to not feel like, you know, there's like this ha- huge decade gap that <laughs> <laughs> you're watching something that's old. But Donnie Darko still remains, you know, kind of like. You can still see it happening in today's world, obviously. Um, but like you said, obviously more cameras would probably be around surveillancing the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned already about Donnie Darko, the fact he's in therapy. I mean, right from the start, he's an unreliable sort of uh, source. So you, you're already never sure whether you're seeing something that's actually happening or it's just Donnie's general mental state. I mean, he's in therapy. He's been described as having hallucinations and paranoia and the fact he's on different different sorts of meds and that his parents are uh, sending to a to a psychiatrist because of uh, earlier issues he's had. He talks previously about the fact that he burned down a house accidentally and that at the same time he's highlighted constantly as being an incredibly smart individual. So it really sort of throws it, throws it up. It's so, and you as the viewer, you're not sure what you're watching and whether these things are in on his head and whether you're just watching someone's mind sort of unravel that uh, being like overcome with someone like schizophrenia and the fact that their justification for doing everything is this demonic time-travelling bunny called Frank, who, it has okay. to be said, is uh, played by Gregoraki favourite James Duval, which, I said, if you're a Gregoraki fan, is a real sort of nice touch to see him turn up there because he's kind of like an indie darling, much like... Um, mm-hmm. In many ways, when he did, when he actually when he's revealed as being being the the man and in the bunny suit, um, I kind of didn't want him to take the take the head off and just wanted to just see him constantly be in this bunny suit because the character Frank is so cool to look at. Uh, so much so, I've got a couple of Frank dolls around around the place here, and I think just this demonic bunny is so cool. And I think my Halloween costume of choice, if I was to go, was any of uh, the costumes we see here. So.
1: well yeah no but i think that you know it it had to at one point uh the head had to come off right because you could have you could have taken that bunny as kind of like it really depended how the movie wanted to be you know unveiled if it was kind of like you know he's seeing some kind of demonic bunny for real like yeah uh then yes but the fact is, you know, the bunny kind of reflects back into the reality. And, you know, he's kind of seeing into the future. And and I think that, you know, the moment that it, they're talking about, you know, I think that there's that conversation in the cinema when he takes off the head where he's like, don't you see what's going on or something? And then sort of thing. and And then you're kind of like, what do you mean? You know, like... What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and then it all, and then the aha moment at the end when it all comes together yeah. is just is just really like shows so much craft in like the writing of of, of Richard Kelly and how refined it is. um You know, I, that's something I really appreciate.
0: I totally agree. I think mean, certainly for the end to work you have to have him take the head off but I just, when he's in the cinema and he's sort of like, oh, why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? And he responds with, why are you wearing that stupid man suit? And just leave it at that. He never takes the head off. I thought that would have been pretty cool as well. Well, um, for sure.
1: I mean, at the same time I, I really think that, you know, there there's this like, I think I think a lot of credit has to go to uh, Jake Guyenhall for being Donnie Darko also. Um, like, the way he interacts with Frank and the different things, like, that he does and and just his, his facial expressions are freaking creepy. They are <laughs> so creepy. Like, in the beginning, he just, like, has this, like, kind of, like evil smile you know after a job like that i could really see how he eventually got to you know like later movies um in his career like uh he did enemy right Uh, that sort of stuff right and and it really reflects in in you know like that even early on in his career he really had quite uh you know a talent for he had quite a good talent i think
0: yeah, I mean, certainly the, the first shot we see where he wakes up and he's on in the sort <laughs> of the mountain road, and as you said, he's got this sort of smoke. It's not like the normal person where, especially if they used to sleepwalking, where it's like, oh my god, it happened again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm now going to ride all the way back into town now and explain to my parents where the hell I've been all night. Um, but yeah, t- certainly Jake and Hood's he really got that. S- I mean, you're right. I mean, here he's still a young actor. He's not really been in a huge amount at this point, so he's still largely unknown. And he's playing opposite his sister Maggie Maggie Gyllenhaal, which I think is just perfect, especially because they're playing brother and sister opposite each other. So when you've got the the opening um, sort of dinner table sequence and they're just swearing and calling each other out, it just Oh, it just gets me every time. It's sort of like, tell me, how do exactly do you suck a fuck? <laughs> and uh, you've got the dad there telling the younger sister to cover her ears because he knows that basically it's not going to end anytime soon when, now that these two have started up at, on each other. Um, the fact that he, he's digging on her working at Yarn Barn and she's digging on him for just being nuts. Um, it's, as I say, it's just really funny to watch those two go back and forth. And I remember... Certainly, when the, you had that line, exactly, oh, tell me how do you suck a fuck, just the audience, like, erupted in laughter when, uh, with that line, and i just. It was, uh. It was just so funny. And <laughs> when you when you see, like, how the father's reacting and how the mother's reacting, it's just basically at this point, just a, a, a sup. Every time there's something, like, going on, she's constantly drinking. It has to be noticed, like, mm-hmm. whenever there's, like, someone's talking about. Um like chaos happening in the town or this chaos happening at a dinner table. She's always got a glass of red wine in her hand. That's, that's her, uh, she's, she's liquid medicating her, herself the same way that her son's being medicated. She's got her own way of dealing with the world around her. So.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, one of those little things that, you know, you notice in the film, even right from the beginning, like just from that moment where he wakes up and he's heading home on the bike, Um, I love how I think there's a lot of transition scenes that happen like that where we catch a lot of the details that are going around to kind of get an idea of like, um, you know, the neighborhood he's in and his sisters and then, you know, his parents and that sort of thing. And then, you know, you go home and I love that the first thing he does, he goes to the fridge and then on the fridge on the board, it says, where is Donnie Darko? (laughs) and then you're just like it's like it's like well you know obviously this isn't a first-time occurrence <laughs> and then it's just that one little line and you kind of know so much more about this character just like you know the dinner table reveals that you know he's in therapy and and all that all those things that you didn't know before um and just kind of like his relationship with his family as well as you know the like oh well what's his problem sort of thing you know
0: yeah, his problem could be uh, linked as well a lot <laughs> and but this... I, I really and, and
1: i really and it's really nice to see that you know they take this problem and they're like well in a in a psychiatric way you know he's imagining all these things and at the end we we realize they're talking about you know the fear of being alone the fear of being left alone um it's kind of like loneliness is his issue and you wonder if you know and I think that that might actually be a, a point because, you know, he starts kind of like, I guess, getting more of a grip of the situation and being able to face Frank and all those things when he starts being with uh, Gretchen. And you, you see kind of like a bit of his character does have a little bit of change, even though some of the things are still, you know, out of his control.
0: Definitely. When his relationship with Gretchen's, it it's sort of like this, this positive that comes from the situation, the fact that... Because he didn't die by having a jet engine falling him while he was asleep, he now gets to embark on this relationship with Gretchen, who herself has got her own issues with uh, the fact that her and her mother are in kind of like a witness protection situation after her father stabbed her mother in the chest about six or seven times with a carving knife. So she's chosen the name Gretchen Ross because she th- thought it sounded cool. And it kind of plays off well against the fact that Donnie... That Donnie Darker which is again is another weird name and I, their relationship is so random how it comes together the fact that <laughs> she sort of comes into the class and you've got um, um, Drew Barrymore yeah you've got Drew Barrymore's teacher and she does that you know that hit movie thing of oh sit next to the boy who you think is the cutest and you think, think back of your own time in school it's like that never have happened it's just like any time teacher would be like, "Just get your ass in a fucking chair." I don't give a shit what you said. I, I mean, yeah, d- just. Uh, I mean, Drew Barrymore here. She was a producer on the film. Her production company, Flower Films, was responsible for the distribution of the film. And she actually said that with her character here, because she plays his uh, teacher, Karen Pomeroy. That the character was so unlike herself because she likes to smile a lot in re- in real life, and with here we have a character who doesn't smile a lot. And is very serious, which I thought was just uh, an interesting interesting transition. And we'll also come back to her character in because she plays a lot into uh, one of, sort of like the sort of undertone themes of the film. But certainly with the character Gretchen, it's the relationship seems implausible, yet plausible at the same time. The fact that she chooses to sit next to Donnie and... They have these number of random um, occasions and then suddenly they're going out or going together, as Donnie calls it, because apparently that's what uh, how they do things in his town. And somehow they end up forming this incredibly close, close bond and relationship. And it all seems completely believable. The fact that even though Donnie seems completely off the rails and Gretchen seems kind of aloof, yet they have a very sort of believable relationship together, I found. Yeah she's kind of like the the polar opposite of like the manic pixie dream girl situation she's kind of like the odd girl yet still got that uh appeal to her <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah yeah no i i jenna malone is is a very interesting actress i think um i've seen her in a lot of things and i never remember what i see her in but i always remember the role that she's in so, <laughs> so she she's always kind of like that person that I have to think back. Oh wait, I know this person. I've seen them in something. The way she talks sounds so familiar. And then you know you <laughs> have this whole process of figuring out what this person is, and 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 then I go back and I always remember her in like Pride and Prejudice um, as like um, as one of the the sisters. So it's it's. It's crazy because she she has so much range and I've always seen her do kind of like more of like a very loud character. Whereas this one is, is more, you know, quiet in that sense where, you know, she's a bit weird and she kind of like, I guess that's why she likes Donnie Darko because he's also kind of quiet. Mm. Um, there's like this mysteriousness to him, I guess. And, you know. It's, it, he's always, you know, he's there at the right time as well whenever, uh, when they need him, right? So, uh, like, like, you know, when, she, when the, 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 I don't know what you call it, the douchey boys start to try to get her. Yeah. it's kind of thing. And then she, yeah. And then, and then he's just there. And then, you know, he's just like, he's like, she's like, oh, do you want to walk me home or something, you know? And, and they're a certain part of her character is also very, like, you know, she's willing to take those steps that maybe Donnie Darko by himself wouldn't have done. So, you know, in that sense, it really does work because it feels like there are many things that happens in his life, I think. That's why he listens so much to Frank, where if Frank hadn't done, hadn't, like, gotten, hadn't been that, you know, part daydreaming, makes it, like, no, uh, no, well no, it's Dream walking was it? Dream walking, sleepwalking. Yeah,
0: sleepwalking. Forgot
1: the word. Yeah, if it wasn't sleepwalking, he would not have you know done those things, which made these situations happen, like being able to walk Gretchen home, or um, you know not have died. <laughs> you know that's a big one. And um, and and in some ways, you know, I think in that sense, he there's a point where you know he talks at the end about how he feels indebted, kind of to him, like oh, well, I have to listen to Frank because i owe him kind of thing right and it's it's kind of crazy because you think about it and it's like yeah well you know all these things really do match together and you're like well does frank predict the future is that what he is like is he from the future because that's what you know we thought it was in, in the beginning right but then but then there there's like that there's still that whole mystery of how frank got to where he was and why he's in his mind and there's there's still a lot of questions that when the movie ends you you kind of still think back and you're like well there's something a lot more deeper to, to what's going on that maybe you know there's so much more to explore here and and I think that you know in that sense Richard Kelly is you know making sure kind of to tell you that well my audience is smart they won't mind something which isn't all answered um, and they're gonna it's gonna make them think a little bit more about what they watched.
0: Definitely so, and I think that certainly when we look at the relationship that Gretchen and Donnie have, I think it adds a lot to the film and the fact that it gives it a lot more grand, especially when you've got so much weirdness thrown at the screen, and certainly someone like David Lynch, for example, would just go with the weirdness. He wouldn't give us this sort of reprieve, yet Richard Kelly, on the other hand, he gives us these little reprieves, these little moments of grandness, whether it's I said, whether it's Donnie and Gretchen's um, romance, which it doesn't, as I said, it's very unlikely, uh, yet it still works. I mean, the fact that she's uh, talking about her mother and like her father has mental issues, and his response is, Oh, well, I have those. (laughs) Which ones does he have? Um, Or the fact that uh, he takes her to see the Evil Dead and she falls asleep within five seconds, the film's starting, says the person who (laughs) who fell asleep ten minutes into watching The Howling this evening, so. We also have uh, the discussion with Donnie and his friends about the Smurf gangbang and how Smeg's <laughs> Smurf's sexual, sexual organs work and yeah these little bits really sort of help break up the the weirdness, the overwhelming mystery here and I just really like the fact that he does all this sort of world building within the film. It's not just a case of oh I'm just going to tell this like time travel style story and have these weird moments and hallucinations and and have these moments where you're going to question whether the character is sane or not, and I'm going to give you these little moments of sort of breathing space for you to to just enjoy the film and just to and just to throw just not make it such a, a relentless assault on your on your senses. And I think that's certainly what helped the film gain its sort of cool appeal. The fact that it's not just one thing. It's not just a try and travel movie. It's not uh, just like this surreal experience. The fact that you've got. Elements of comedy, you've got romance, you've got pop culture references, and it just all comes together in this really sort of delicious sort of shoe that's just so much fun to to take apart and put together. I mean, it's just stupid little moments such as
1: yeah, when they're, but two... you know, but you know, although these stupid moments, you know, you call them like you know the the Smurfette's <coughs> purpose and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it what it does is it grounds him. It, it makes us feel that, you know, Donnie Darko, despite all his, you know, craziness and having to go see the psychiatrist and his abnormality and his weirdness and all that stuff. He still, you know, he he still has friends and he still, you know, they're still like teenagers who talk about weird things because that's what teenagers do. <laughs> you know, they sit around and they 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 dream up random purposes for <laughs> for, you know. Issues that don't really
0: matter. Yeah, definitely so. And you, I mean, you nailed it right there. I mean, the fact that he has all these sort of issues, yet he's still got this social circle, and his friends are sort of like come to accept that he has these quirks, such as the fact he's he's daydreaming, like one of his friends when we had the first sort of bus stop sequence, and his friend like remarks, he's like, "Oh, you you were sleepwalking again, there, buddy," and. <laughs> the fact that uh, Kelly writes all his characters, and they they're not sort of smart mouth teens; they're sort of very sort of traditional sort of like teenage characters. This is sort of nonsense that teenage uh, boys tend to talk about, such as uh, you know what Smurfs get up to, or the <laughs> fact that um, you can that if the bus doesn't turn up at a certain time that we ha- that you can go home, so you don't get molested by some pedo in a van. <laughs> so. Although I have to say that watch, rewatching watching it this time I did think that they were kind of overly mean to Sharita. I did feel kind of bad for her. Um, but I did like the fact that uh, Donnie walks open for her earmuffs and just him walking down the street just seemingly out of his mind and wearing earmuffs is just kind of funny to me, so. <laughs> um, no just want to talk a bit about uh, the character Karen Pomeroy here, played by Drew Barrymore. She is introduced into um, discussing the film The Destructors by Graham Greene. It's a short story about uh, these boys who commit an act of uh, vandalism and in many ways it's seen and blamed by the kind of nuts gym teacher Kitty Farmer as being the reason why we've got these random acts of violence appearing in the town and did you sort of, like, draw any sort of, like, links between what was happening, obviously, with, with like, what she talks about in Grain Green and and what Donnie, obviously, does? Um, I mean, for myself, it's hard to say. I was really, sort of, sort of the question is, like, do we view Donnie as an anarchist or is he an agent of change?
1: Well, I think you can view it in the same way. Because that's what, that's what, you know, if we interpret it the way that, I've never read this before, but I mean, if you interpret it the way that Donnie Darko uh, explains it in class, where he says, I think, destruction is um, a form of creation, and it's because um, they want to change things, or along those lines, I don't remember the line exactly, Mm. um, then then, yes, in a way, you can view him as an anarchist who wants to change things, right? Because in many ways, what, what he's doing when he's sleepwalking is kind of like a subconscious, you know, especially after you think back to, um, to like, the fact of what we know about Frank. Uh, then, in some ways, the destruction he does um, and the vandalism that he commits... Uh, is definitely you know he's he's an anarchist in that sense right but in some ways the things that he does has also changed the course of events of of what happens to him like we were saying you know he he evades death and then he he is able to walk gretchen home and then she becomes his girlfriend and so on so forth right
0: yeah definitely certainly it feels that because frank saves his his life he's then able to use donny to invoke these elements of of chains the fact that because of uh the distractions being taught in school it leads kitty to rally the pta to ban it and in the original script the book gets replaced with uh watership down which is, <laughs> kind, of, which is kind of fitting uh which is obviously tied more into the bunny theme going on here and because of it basically gives Kitty the fuel that she needs to bring in Jim Cunningham, here played by Patrick Swayze, who's kind of like a motivational sp- uh, speaker and self-help guru, who has this theory of life, you, that you make l- bad decisions in life because of fear, and that by controlling fear, that you would make positive decisions in life, and because of Donnie, the, these acts that donnie being. Sort of, I don't want to say force, but he's being guided to carry out by Frank, such as like flooding the school, and um, it sort of sets up sets it so that that Jim Cunningham can then be brought into the school and try and you know capture the uh, the youth and bring them back on track so they're not just going all crazy because obviously Kitty sees uh, the fact that the destructors are being taught and that she said feels that because they're teaching the tricks in school, that it's caused the students to go off the rails and vandalize the school. Um, and then by bringing Cunningham in, because she's like one of his biggest supporters, that it's all going to bring things back on track. And it does feel like uh, very much the fact that that uh, Frank, because Frank obviously knows the end game here, the fact that he, he knows that the fact that we've got to get Cunningham to come in, um, and then we can obviously finally. eight, it, it's sort of like a long game that he plays where you, you can finally expose Cunningham for who he actually is.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: thought it was kind of funny that the fact that you've got Kitty saying that Graham Greene's The Destructors is pornography being taught in class, and yet she's here um, backing a secret pornographer, which I yeah. thought was kind of ironic, really.
1: I think, I think you know, that that's the thing, is that a lot of things as the movie goes along um, – it's kind of like all kind of links together because yeah. if, if you think about it what Jim Cunningham says about fear and how he analyzes Donnie Darko when they're having that little like you know talk during school um it kind of makes sense also how he you know how he talks about Donnie Darko how a lot of these things are out of fear and out of you know that uh, fear of whatever, right? And then you know you 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 have the psychiatrist that comes in who tells him, who who starts telling his parents that you know I believe that Donnie Darko you know is is has a fear of what being alone or loneliness or or something like that, and and it all kind of like links together where you're kind of like whoa, it maybe that like is that really the cause of what why he's you know, dreaming up all these things, right? Because at that point, you're still not quite sure what Frank is because he's obviously something that happens in the future, but during the process, is it a loop? Is it is it the fact that Frank is there as, like, because he's looped back before and he's just an image of his memory that's been left behind, you know?
0: It's... It's, a, it's so interesting. I mean, this is, again, where by, by Rufus in the film, you get to sort of enjoy sort of piecing it together. It's the fact that because Frank empowers Donnie um, to, to commit these acts, the fact that it gives Donnie sort of like the strength to totally derail Jim Cunningham's motivational seminar where everyone else is sort of buying into this bullshit that he's he's spouting and Donnie's like the one who like gets up there and just basically calls him out in front of everyone and Mm -hmm. he sort of like continues uh in the to evolve into this this persona change and we see it earlier in the film when they're doing the fear doing like the workshop classes and you got um he tells basically kitty to, to to shove the card up her ass yeah. Which uh is just such another great great scene. It ties in nicely the fact that they talk about um that in these these workshop cards the fact that oh a character finds a wallet on the on the ground. Uh does she keep keep the money and return the card and this is a product of fear and later we have Donnie discover Jim Cunningham's wallet outside his house and I wondered is, is this something Jim Cunningham set up that he leaves his wallet outside his house to see what people do <laughs> um, that's just something that dawned him on this latest viewing so as I said even multiple viewings later you still find stuff to <laughs> these stupid little bits to obsess over so mm. um but how? I mean, how do we find Kitty Farmer, Kitty? Because I mean, she's here played by Beth Grant, and Beth Grant is kind of renowned for playing these really these these agents of just aggravation, like uh, these self-righteous elder characters who basically do, cause nothing but uh, themselves to be like a pain in the protagonist's ass, really, with their by. By them being so forceful in a view. in this case uh her pushing like jim cunningham as being this wonderful man who's going who's out there trying to save the youth of america
1: i don't know i i don't remember her in anything else um
0: she's I, the I think... pageant um organizer in little miss sunshine as well
1: oh yeah that's what she looks familiar no she looks familiar i just couldn't mm. pinpoint where she's from um but yeah no and then you have um i think her character is good i think it's there for you know it's just that the right purpose right yeah to 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 promote something but at the same time create kind of like kind of like she believes in a very um I guess a very idealistic kind of world where things go a certain way and things must be done a certain way and you know everything has to be in place in their perfect little way the way she sees it. And that's why in her mind she's she's just like just like how she tries to have that little workshop for fear. She's very black and white. Mm. You know, there's no gray area, and that was one of the things. You know that in this world that they're in, that Donnie Darko challenges her because he doesn't believe that everything is categorized in, you know, fear or or not. Right?
0: Definitely not. And I think it just makes it all the better that when her world suddenly comes crashing to ground when it, when Cunningham's outed as being a pedophile, and the fact that she can't she can't deal with uh, the word kiddie porn. Um, much less, uh, uh, much less has the uh, great line. I really doubt in your devotion to spark emotion. Um, the, the, her daughter's little dance troupe that we see uh, perform here, and <laughs> I think yeah. I mean, certainly the character of Jim Cunningham, he's absolutely nailed by Patrick Swayze, who's. I think if you're going to have any sort of 80s throwback, he's the guy to get. And it was the month, the sparked a little revival period for Swayze up into his, uh, his uh, death from cancer. So, and he's really interested in Jim Cunningham. I think he just really nails the party. So, sort of yeah. like, goes into this knowing how to play this character. The fact you got to play him like like um, some Christian televangelist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's perhaps what it could have been in another in a different sort of script. They would have been like a televangelist sort of character, but instead he's a, a, a motivational speaker who just has one of those, these weird programmes that makes absolutely no sense when you put it into real life terms. As Donny obviously points out the fact that life isn't so clear cut. It's not all like fear and um and and positivity, so Yeah. Um, okay, uh, soundtrack wise, what did you think of the soundtrack? Because I really, I really like the the soundtrack, a lot of really cool 80s stuff on then you get Echo and the Bunnymen and Tears for Fears and mm-hmm. uh, we also get uh, Gary Jules' cover of Mad World, which was a number one hit for Christmas over here in the UK so once again says a lot about what our tastes are in the UK because we also uh, managed to get Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name of the number one <laughs> one Christmas as well so go us <laughs> um, at the same time we've got a score by Michael Andrews which brings to mind the works of uh, Danny Elfman but without that sort of like uh, umpa sort of like moments of exuberance it's more his uh, sort of like the Danny Elfman sort of haunting and mysterious sort of uh, score which sort of underpaints many of the moments in the film
1: well, the score is really good, and I think like the music that I remember most of would probably be like those transition scenes like um in the beginning where I talked about you know where he's biking home and the music that goes on during that time I really liked what went on with there and I think there's another scene or two in the in the back that does the same thing when he kind of wakes up and then he goes off or or it was something else and you know he there, there's all these kind of different moments where the soundtrack really um matches what's going on and and it, and yeah i mean I, I can't pinpoint the songs exactly but uh but i i think the soundtrack works really well with with the movie itself and like the different sequences that they're going and kind of like just building on like the score built on a lot of like you know the mystery and kind of like a bit of the suspense i guess
0: yeah i mean that was kind of bizarre it was kind of bizarre when i Put, loaded up the digital version they switched it uh, switched the music around so that the opening So biking sequence they put te- uh, never tears apart by NXS, When mm-hmm. the original version is uh, the Killing moon by echo and the bunnyman and it was weird that yeah. when we get the Halloween sequence then they put the the killing moon uh, in there, which is I mean I love that song and do, no matter, regardless of which version you watch whether it, whether that song appears during the Halloween sequence or it appears in the opening sequence, um, it works both ways, but I just, when I think of Donnie Darko and I think of him riding his bicycle and the Killing Moon play, that's that's the version of Donny Darko that plays in my head, and at the same time we've got the uh, Head Over Heels by Tez Phil, T- 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 which, like, plays at this montage of where we go for the school and we sort of open with like the back of the school bus opening and we go through the school yeah. and we see all the different characters in the different groups and i think it was a really cool sequence in the fact that oh that
1: was that was a great sequence that was a sequence i was trying to think of and i forgot about it was just like you know passing the torch from one person to the next it would follow one person and then it would follow the next person and then follow the next person and it was so great, and just, you know, seeing that, you know, school world that we, now, we wanted to know from teachers, from different groups of students, and, you know, that sort of stuff. And I thought that scene was great. Like, one of the best scenes of, of, the, of the movie
0: yeah, um, and you get to see you. I mean, it establishes where everything is in the school, and as you say, it establishes all the key groups. We get to see like who's where's Donny. We get to see where some, his younger sister Samantha and her little dance sparkle group sparkle Motion. <laughs> <laughs> Um And they're doing their practice, and we see obviously them being watched by Kitty, who's obviously who's like their dance teacher. We get to see um, Karen and her boyfriend of sorts. Um, Kenneth here played by Noel Wilde. so exciting if you like ER because he yeah. uh, he turns up and he does his thing we also get to see like the school bullies uh, played by Seth Rogen really early performance by him and Alex Greenwald who plays uh the rather psychotic Seth Devlin um, it's, it's so bizarre when when you look back at this and you see Seth Rogen here and especially as he's obviously gone on to do huge things now he's like you know this this huge entity of him his own and here he's sort of coming off freaks and geeks, and he's still kind of unknown. And this is kind of like side character who really only gets a couple of words, lines in the film. Um, commenting that he likes Gretchen's boobs, and and uh, derailing their little science presentation when they're talking about creating these goggles for for ki- for infants, so they got something to mm-hmm. look at in the dark. Huh. Um, but yeah, I mean the whole. All the sort of eighty selections are real; they're not so sort of like obvious eighty uh, selections. I think that's what really sort of helps the film, and I think a lot of people didn't hadn't heard of like the Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnyman, and they hadn't; um, they probably wouldn't have heard Head Over Heels by Tears to Fear as well. And I think that by having those sort of key songs and them not being sort of like sort of stand out. I mean, even Mad World, um, it sort of gave gave the original version of that song many sort of plays. Well, as I said, when we look at the the version we could hear the the um gary jules piano drill one which plays such a key memorable sequence where sort of ever all the main characters sort of wake up and we go from one to the next and we see them all in their sort of lives as this sort of like end note to the film it uh it, it really sort of sort of creates this really powerful and incredible moment yeah and then we obviously get the Sparkle Motion, who danced to uh, "Notorious" by Duran Duran, which is <laughs> it's pretty cool. I, like, I, I like, like how that song's used, and um, yeah, it makes a nice sort of contrast to the fact that you've got this element of uh, you get to see basically the whole town, all sort of the main characters of the town are watching the Sparkle Motion performance while Donnie's off burning down Jim Cullingham's house, so. <laughs> It's, it, was uh, a
1: light, it was a nice comparison, though, <laughs> when they were doing the, the two things going on at the same time kind of deal.
0: Yeah. Did you kind of get the ending of this film? Or did it sort of like leave you go, what the hell was that about?
1: No, I got the ending. Okay. I, I I think, at least I think I got the ending. I'm just saying like, like I was saying before, there are some things in the ending which which is kind of like, well, it makes sense because, you know, it loops kind of. And at the same time, it kind of like it it makes sense on on what it, it stays true to what it's trying to do the whole time right but um there there are some questions that are left unanswered um about you know the process of watching the movie uh, but I'm pretty happy with the ending uh, I don't have an issue with how it ended awesome. at least I think I understood what i what it was about maybe I'm wrong. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean that was it again. It was all the things when I came back after watching the original. I was like on the internet in seconds of getting in the door, and I was all like, "What does it all mean?" (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if you've been paying attention to the dates, it it kind of like um, basically says that that we're we're back at the start. So um, I mean, yeah,
1: kind of.
0: We can we kind of at
1: the back of the start.
0: I mean, we can go into a whole in-depth explanation and completely gives you all the weird little bits and pieces for you if you want but we'll do that for another time maybe but because we're going on a little bit here as as it is with me getting a chance to geek out of this movie which i think was going to be always expected so <laughs> so further viewing what would you want to pair this with i've got a, a few ideas
1: Oh, I had I had a lot, and started a, and then I eventually looked at my list, and I was like, wait, this is all Jake Hall movies. That's not right. <laughs> and then I was like, maybe this guy does really similar movies. That's why I have all these movies on. There.
0: He t- he takes I, risks, yeah.
1: He takes risks, and a lot of movies he's actually done a few that kind of have that element of, um, I don't know, not really a loop, but that sort of stuff. But anyways, the most obvious one was my first choice was 2011 Source Code.
0: Okay, um, yeah.
1: That's, you know, time travel, obviously, at its, its, at its rawness. <laughs> where, um, I, I'm a big fan of source code. I don't know how big it got, but it's pretty much, you know, if, if you don't know what it is. Uh, it's really, like, a soldier who wakes up, and he wakes up in someone else's body, and he discovers that, you know, he's part of this experimental government project where he has to try and find a bomber on a commuter train. Um, but he can only go back every time for like eight minutes. So he has to try and like complete the mission and keep going back every time to, <laughs> to, to, figure this out. Um, it's a really, I really like the movie. Um, it's really great. It has, you know, Vera Farmiga and Michelle Mon- Monaghan and, uh, you know, obviously Jake Guyon is in there. Um, it's a really great movie, like a great travel, time travel sort of movie. Um, going on that kind of like same time travel thing. Um, I also went with 2014's, um, indie time travel film, Time Lapse. Okay. Uh, which has, you know, one of the, I don't know, have you seen it? Have you seen Time Lapse?
0: I've not seen Time Lapse, no.
1: Yeah. Time Lapse is, uh, is with Danielle Padabaker. Uh, before she was part of, you know, the, uh, the Flash and all that stuff. <laughs> Um, But yeah, no, uh, Time Lapse is a really good movie um, in talking about time travel, which also has that loop feeling where um, it's about, you know, three friends who discover that their neighbor has this machine that takes pictures 24 hours into the future. So um, as they start seeing this, they start, you know having to work around, you know, what's going to lead to that image to happen and, the, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, they have to piece all these things together. Uh, it's, it's very, very good. And I don't want to, you know, break the, you know, I don't want to spoil anything in that one because I feel like that one's really worth visiting, especially if you like time travel movies. Yeah. And then my third movie uh, is more of kind of like the concept of uh, movie loops which kind of like end where they begin sort of thing and I'm gonna go with a classic, which is Christopher Nolan's memento. Okay. Which I don't really think needs a lot of explanation. <laughs> so I'm gonna just leave it at that.
0: Got a few ideas of things you can watch. Again if we did the time the time travel ones myself. I mean obviously first off we would say Time Crimes from twenty seven uh two thousand and seven. Uh, directed by Nacho Vigalondo, uh, certainly this is a film which has got a lot of hype, especially from fans of uh, time travel. On a similar sort of theme, we have Triangle uh, from two thousand and nine, which is directed by Christopher Smith, a director I really wish um, got more sort of cred than than uh, he than he gets really, as he gave us not only Creep, but also the rather fantastic Severance as well. And here he get, we have a, a film where a single mother. Um, played by Melissa George. She goes on a boating trip with several friends and they're basically forced to abandon their, their boat and they end up on a derelict ocean liner where they've become convinced that someone is stalking them But again, not everything is really as it seems as they soon discover um, Next up we have a film which I would say is really similar in tone to Dodoco Just in the fact that it plays jump rope with as many genres as possible and that's the 2011 film Detention um where a serial killer known as cinder is on the loose and the principal basically rounds up all the disgruntled students and likely suspects and put them in all day detention as they try to figure out who is uh cinder this is a film which has got i say it's got comedy romance time travel and many other random genres thrown together in what is probably what uh, an equally sort of random matchup that we obviously get with um, Donnie Darko. Finally, I mean, if you wanted to see more Jake Gyllenhaal performances, other than obviously you said source code already, I would also recommend checking out um, Nightcrawler as well as. Um, um, as well as checking out, uh, his film Velvet Boss, or two really fantastic performances there, which show a range of an actor who, much like Joseph Gordon, Gordon-Levitt, is just absolutely not afraid to take on the most random of roles, and just, uh, really shows no sort of, like, boundaries. Much like his sister, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who, let's not forget, starred in the S&M Fantasy Secretary, um, and both of them just absolutely fearless with the roles they're willing to take on and challenge themselves as actors so those would certainly be uh be my personal picks there for this one so that uh brings us to the end of another edition of movies and tea we hope you've enjoyed listening as always and um it also brings us to the end of our after hours block so um and uh I think more excitingly, we get to finally announce who is going to be our director for season four. And um, Kim, who are we going to be discussing for season four?
1: Season four, we're going for the big guys now. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'd definitely be considered more bigger than everyone we've had done before. Certainly. I mean. um, yeah, so we're going with um, Taiwanese director Ang Lee.
0: Yeah, Ang Lee, a director who much like uh, <laughs> much like the films we've been discussing have jump genres. Here we have a director who has proven himself to work in any genre that he feels like, as well as being blasting forth onto the scene with a fascinating um, Cantonese language uh, series of films known as his father's knows best trilogy uh made up of pushing hands the wedding banquet and eat drink man woman uh which will be the focus of our first episode when we return as we'll be looking at the father's knows best trilogy in one hefty block um as we look at uh his filmography uh <laughs> As we uh, obviously go from the father knows best trilogy through to uh, the life of Pi, charting the work and uh, themes of of, of his uh, filmography. So make sure you join us next time as we kick off season four, which will this time be looking at Ang Lee. Uh, as always, you can find uh, the rest of our archive over on wordpress.com where you can find listen to all three of our previous seasons where it's the after hours episode so uh so if you want to hear us discuss the filmographies of Paul W.S. Anderson or Guillermo del Toro and more recently Sofia Coppola you can find it all on there and on every Friday we post our double feature as part of our Friday film club where I recommend a film Kim recommends a film and we highlight uh those films that. Of interest to both of us. Um, also, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons where you're listening to us on Podomatic or iTunes or Google or Spotify uh, or Castbox, wherever you happen to be listening to us. Uh, if you do hit the like and subscribe buttons, it really helps. Much like leaving us a review, let us know what you think of the show. We love to hear feedback from you guys and uh, anything you want to let us know and what you feel about these films. We always love to hear it um also on social media if you want to come and be our fake cyber friends you can follow us on facebook and twitter and instagram where we uh post regular updates of uh things not only linked to our directors but things that generally interest in the world of film as well but uh, until next time thank you as always to my co-host kim and uh thank you everyone for listening and we will be back next time with season four kicking off looking at the films of ang lee good night